We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking Burhalter and Lasso and MLS and CCL and UCL and European League Roundup and PFOC and Polisic and Wings and Cry Macho and water skiing and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this? Uh, let's see. We got Monday, September 20th in the year 2021. How are you, my friend? I am doing well. You mentioned we'd be talking lasso. Is that because you watched last night's victory lap at the Emmys? I have I have stuff to say about lasso. OK, I will get to it uh, in a second. Um, yes, um, I did. Well, out of the corner of our eye, because we were working MLS last night, and it should come as no surprise that they they won. They were nominated for everything, so eventually they're going to hit and uh, uh, richly deserved, as far as uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, before I get to that, though, uh, anything uh, took your fancy this uh, this week in terms of your viewing habits? I have finished Downton Abbey. Okay, wow! All right, you just blazed through that, my friend. All right, so now that you're done, uh, first off, grade A A to F. Oh, A. A. Oh, really? Loved it. Oh, really? You loved it that much? Okay. All right. So it lived up because a lot of times when you come at it later on after everything you've read and seen, and it was part of the whole, uh, um, part of our our, our landscape for for so long, it doesn't necessarily live up. All right. I, I didn't think, I didn't give it an A, but a solid B. I mean, passing absolutely and, and much more so. Um, okay. So in, in general, what, what did you like about it and what led you to give it an A? Well, uh, any show that has an ensemble cast like that, uh, when you get to the end, uh, if it's done right, you sort of miss having these people in your life and mm-hmm. being able to check in on them. And and I did have that sensation at the end. I, in fact, watched the movie right after I finished the final episode uh, of the show. And by the way, there's talk of a second movie that's going to come out next year, which, by the way, might be a bit much. Uh, I, I know we're living in this era where anything you do that's successful, you have to try to squeeze every last drop from it. But right. I don't know if I need another Downton Abbey movie. But uh, but no, yeah, I, I really connected with the characters. Uh, so you found yourself at, at all times caring with 
with these people because there, there's an element of why the hell should we care about these <laughs> privileged, overindulged, uh, oftentimes oblivious people collectively in terms of the lives that they are living and individually oftentimes in terms of the lives they are living. Yeah, another show I love is Succession and that show has triggered some of that same debate. Why, why should we care about these uh annoying rich people but yeah i don't know i mean I, now i should say i didn't care about all the characters right. the other thing about an ensemble cast like that is it's hard to make every character interesting and there were a couple down there in the servants uh, halls that i i could have done without that uh miss baxter okay. i didn't find anything interesting with her um you know a couple of other ones so all right well we can check uh, that off our list though uh in terms of things that we watch uh, there's there's other kind of seminal uh shows that i, I still have backlogged i guess the what's the um i did the sopranos but the wire everyone screamed and yelled about the wire so i, I have to put that one down all right so uh downton abbey thumbs up from uh, from both of us uh okay anything else you watched uh Oh, let me just say, you mentioned The Wire, uh, and an actor from that show recently passed away, which was very sad, a guy who played Omar, so uh, that was a big loss. He's incredibly talented. Um, but uh, no, you'll, you'll, that, that is a can't miss. I, I will be stunned if you okay. come back okay. and don't have <laughs> All right, well, we'll see. And that, mean, as we know, your B is my A because you're tougher to please. That's true. So, I am, so. I am, a, I am, I'm a taskmaster and I, I, I don't, I don't give easy A's. All right. So what did I watch this week? Um, uh, the new uh, HBO, it's streaming on HBO Max, I think it's called uh, Cry Macho, I think it's uh, called. It's the new Clint Eastwood movie. Um, you know, Clint Eastwood is, is in his 90s right now. He looks every bit of the 90 years. Uh, and yet these these roles now that he takes and these movies that he makes are catered towards a very old person. And that's that's a good thing because, you know, he's not asked to do anything else. I did not like this one um, as much as his what was the last one called where uh, he was the the drug mule or whatever. But that one was really, really good. This is not as good. I didn't care very much. I thought the kid in it is miscast um, and the whole it, it happens back and forth between Texas and, and Mexico. And there's a whole Spanish language thing that's that's going on that I that I didn't think was dealt with uh, the greatest, but it's still Clint Eastwood, and he just is mesmerizing anytime he is uh, um, he is on the on the uh, uh, on the screen. But you know the frailty still now of this once you know epic type of man um, is a, a, a amazing to see, and yet he still churns out quality stuff, and he's still. Uh, an amazing actor. So that was one. Uh, number two, which might be right up your alley, there's something called uh, John of God, The Crimes of a Spiritual Healer on Netflix. And it's in, uh, it's, it's, it's a, about a Brazilian spiritual healer. And, it, and he was horrible in the end. Uh, and he was, you know, he was a con man and, uh, you know, a sexual molester of his flock, if you will. It's all in Portuguese because it happened down in, uh, uh, in Brazil, so I'm reading the the subtitles. It's about a four episode thing, and it's not necessarily any, there's Unfortunately, there are multiple documentaries like this where you have this person and the followers flock, and it turns out to be not the uh, the savior that, that that they thought. But it's interesting um, down there to see that. And you know, he he was huge actually, not just in Brazil but around the world. Oprah Winfrey talked about him and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, that that's good. Which brings me to the final uh, thing I want to talk about, which is Ted Lasso. Um, and as I said, congratulations to Ted Lasso and um, you know all the actors and the producers and the writers and everybody. Uh, last night were the were the Emmys, and they won a bunch of them. I don't know how many, but well deserved because this has become 
you know, something bigger than they probably ever thought it was going to be. And I think it is justified in terms of the praise um, and the accolades that uh, we are giving them. Uh, having said that, um, a couple of things when it comes to, uh, to Ted Lasso. This last episode here, um, and I'm not going to give it too much away, but I watched it uh, last night or the night before. And, you know, I am all for developing storylines and arcs of supporting casts in these types of things we were just talking about Downton Abbey. That's, you know, I think that's important. Um, but the show is called Ted Lasso. So any episode that doesn't have Ted Lasso in it, which was this previous episode, I have a problem with. I mean, he appeared very, very at the very, very end. But this was not about Ted Lasso. It was actually about the assistant coach, Coach Beer. And it took a very weird turn. Um, it, it is called Ted Lasso for a reason. Coach Beard's uh, lost in translation, Twin Peaks, train spotting, eyes wide shut, after hours type of adventure that is this latest episode um, is a bunch of bullshit. It's mildly interesting, mildly funny. But in the end, when I look at it, I think it's completely unnecessary. Now, I did enjoy it more than the early episodes of uh, of season two. So I still think that there is hope for the season two part of Ted Lasso, but they are, they're all over the map. It is swerving all over the place. Some people will probably have loved it and think that it is so outside the box and so uh, evolved and expressive and, and progressive in terms of what it's doing, that it's, that it, it's blowing their minds. Uh, anyway, so that's my Ted Lasso thing for now, but I do have another part of Ted Lasso. Go ahead. I know you want to say something. Well, you mentioned the Sopranos earlier. One of the most polarizing Sopranos episodes uh, ever is one where he's in a coma and he uh, imagines that he's this guy, Kevin F uh, Finnerty, I think is the name, living just some regular life. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that episode? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and some people thought yeah, that the, was- The dream uh, sequence thing. I mean, it's <laughs> all this stuff has been, has been done before. And oftentimes it's because you run out of things to say <laughs> and you're just, try, you're just throwing stuff at it. I mean, they have a whole other season to do season three. I, I don't necessarily think that they have gotten to the bottom of the well, but, and, and once, once again, I- I am not that yet there where they have jumped a shark. Uh, one more thing about Ted Lasso before we go, because last night after the uh, the Emmys, uh, the Emmys, my friend um, and certainly a friend to uh, to soccer, Roger Bennett. Uh, I got a lot of respect for Roger. Uh, I've known him for years. Wonderful writer. Buy his books. Um, they're incredible odes and love letters, especially the last one. Um, to uh, to his upbringing and to America and how much America has meant to him. Uh, but he did have a, have a tweet last night that I want to read here. He said, Jason Sudeikis, who is the, uh, the lead actor and one of the lead writers for the show, Ted Lasso, wins Emmy for lead actor in a comedy series. Hard to exaggerate what Ted Lasso has done for the profile of men's football, soccer, in the United States. Our women have won World Cup after World Cup, cup but few american men have done more for the game than jason and his team now listen i love you raj okay and this i'm actually i'm a little jealous because this is this is a hot hot take that you knew the moment you pressed send was going to drive people uh, drive people crazy ted lasso is a wonderful uh, piece of television and it's interesting and it has exploded and become part of uh, as I said, the uh, you know our, our our social landscape and um, people quote it and people watch it. People that don't care about soccer watch it. People are not watching soccer because of Ted Lasso. Okay, soccer is not changing in the United States because of Ted Lasso. If anything, 
It is driving people to soccer outside of the United States because of where it is set and what it glorifies. Um, it it uh, it is certainly a romantic view of, of the game, but I disagree. Um, we hopefully will agree to respectfully disagree with Roger Bennett in terms of the impact when it comes to our game and the things that we live day in day and day it out. And so that that this ruffled my feathers and ruffled a lot of people in soccer's feathers. I, I want to be careful because I do feel that there was this balance when it came to Ted Lasso of either it's going to laugh at us or it's going to laugh with us. And it's oftentimes a really important balance. And I think it we can laugh at ourselves and be part of everything that we are laughing at. And, and I, when I look at what Ted Lasso is, I, I just take it for what it's worth, which is a great television show and one that obviously has a soccer component that I, as a soccer person, gravitate to. But you don't have to even care at all about soccer. But in no way after watching Ted Lasso, either the first season or anything or in the second season, is anybody then having an epiphany or, or, or coming to the game because of Jason Sudeikis and Ted Lasso. It has reached that entourage level where famous people want to be on it. Mm -hmm. You saw uh, Lineker and Thierry Henry were in this most recent yep. episode that you did not like. Uh, and I suspect moving forward, we'll see more guest appearances like that. So it's taken on that dimension. How do you it feel is. about that? I, I think it's great. I mean, if you, if you get a call, it's a you... popular show. Who wouldn't want to be on a popular show? That's that's absolutely. So you'd be ready to go if they call you, Lexi Lala's guest spot on. Oh, Ted they should Lasso. be so lucky. Are you kidding me? <laughs> w weren't you in the uh, the Full House Girls with what's her name? Mary Kate Nashley. You you're in yes. a movie with them. So right? I have a you know I have a long history when it comes right, to right. cinematic uh, arts. Uh, yes, absolutely, uh, definitely did that. Um, so we'll see. I'll, I'm not going to hold my breath, uh, giving the way that the, that the world works and the way that I've talked about. It. All right, that's enough about Ted Lasso. We got we got a big show here. Uh, should we light this candle? Let's do it. As you know, each and every week we kick the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week it goes a little something like this. In sports, coaches, managers will be criticized, second-guessed, and ridiculed. It comes with the territory. U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter is no exception. So, after last International World Cup qualifying window didn't quite go as planned, it was no surprise that the knives were out. It should be noted, Berhalter's record in 2021 is 13-1-2. He's won two trophies this year, beating our biggest rival, Mexico, in both finals, in away environments with two completely different U.S. national teams, and he's undefeated in World Cup qualifying. He also sent starter Juventus' Weston McKinney home from camp for disciplinary reasons, and he made multiple halftime subs to win on the road versus Honduras in World Cup qualifying. He's 27-6-5 since taking over three years ago. But none of that matters. Burhalter will be judged on qualifying and doing well at the World Cup, as he should. And there are American soccer fans who want to see him fail. And nothing he does will change that. It's okay. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you human. At times, we all harbor secret desires and outcomes that will confirm or justify our beliefs and preferences. At times, we all bathe in the schadenfreude. Now, this is not a blind faith defense of Greg Berhalter or any coach. Yes, I think Berhalter is good. Maybe he will be great. If or when I feel that he's the wrong person for the job, I'll be the first to scream and yell for change. Hell, that might even come after the next World Cup qualifying window in a few weeks. But not today. He's earned another window. Yes, I want to see Greg Berhalter succeed. 
to justify my belief in him. Because, believe it or not, I'm human too. All right, Mossy, so there is my State of the Union for this week. And I know it's a little uh, regressive, if you will, given that we've kind of moved on from the last window. But, you know, I, I, and, and once again, Twitter and, and social media are not focus groups, but there's stuff that's resonate, that resonates out there. And this one certainly did when I, I was talking about Greg Berhalter. And there's still, there is still a whole group of American soccer supporters out there that are not buying Greg Berhalter. They don't think that when he was hired, that he was qualified to be hired. Um, you know, the, uh, the accusations of uh, nepotism when it came to Jay Berhalter, who was his brother at the time, or was working for the Federation, all that kind of stuff plays into it. And a lot of people just don't think that he is of sufficient level to guide, especially in this moment, the amount of, uh, of talent that the U.S. men's national team have. And even before the window, were calling for change. And after the window, which I think we can all agree was less than satisfactory and um, was not a, a, a resounding success, um, are calling for change again. Um, but I, I, you know, I wanted to lay out some of what he has done over the last three years. And I said in the State of Union, I know that whatever happened before ultimately doesn't matter. He's going to be judged on this. But I, I do want people... And I wanted to give reasons why I, at this point, support and continue to support uh, Greg, Greg Berhalter. That can change very, very quickly. But what he has done so far um, is actually unprecedented in terms of the results that, uh, that he has had. But he hasn't qualified the team and he hasn't gone, uh, gone to, the, uh, to the World Cup. Um, do you think that there are those out there that whose minds can be changed when it comes to something like this? And we can apply this to all walks of life because you see this happen in politics. You see this happen in family. Um, you see this happen in business and, and everything where you are set. This person rubs you the wrong way. And no matter what happens, you are, you're not going to change that. And secretly down inside, you wish them to fail. Do you think that Greg Berhalter can do anything, even winning the World Cup, that ultimately will change their mind as to he was not the right man for the job? Well, I would say winning the World Cup would well, be, okay, but, okay. but nothing... But even then, they would find something wrong. <laughs> didn't score enough goals. Certainly nothing up to, that, up to the World Cup, because I think even in qualifying, if he starts uh, churning out results, people will say, well, it's CONCACAF. The U.S. Sure. is supposed to be winning those games with the talent they have. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I thought with those two trophies, he would have earned more currency with the U.S. fan base. Maybe we got caught up in that moment because we covered that Gold Cup final, but that, that felt like a victory where... He would have won over his critics, and yet by the second half of the El Salvador game, uh, Twitter, and, and like you said, Twitter is not always a reflection of the fan base overall, but it seemed like the, the, the critics were back out in full force, and I do wonder if that second half against Honduras had gone the way of the first half and they had come out of the, these first three games with just two points and had fallen to Honduras, what would be the conversation right now? I know there are some that feel like he should have been, he should be fired in that scenario. I don't think that, but certainly he'd be under a lot more pressure and I, I'd wonder what conversation we'd be having right now. How, how confident are you in Greg Berhalter? I like him. I, I know. Well, why, why do you like you're, him? What, what? Just interviews and watching the team play. I think he has interesting ideas. I, I like tactics wonks. Now, I will say, uh, the thing you worry about with tactics wonks is that sometimes they veer off into mad scientist territory and start 
putting players out of position and changing formations too often. We've seen it even with guys like Pep and Nagelsmann. And Burhalter has a little bit of that, so he needs to be careful. Uh, but overall, I like him as a coach. I know people look at you as the MLS shill, and I'm the Euro snob, and I'm supposed to be the the counter to you on that. But uh, what can I say? I, I, I actually like the work he's done. We, we might get into a little bit more of, of this later on when we're doing our European roundup, but the 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 accusation is often thrown around in, in, in multiple sports that they overthink it. This coach overthinks this. You know, I, I've always said that I would rather have someone with a flawed plan than no plan at all. I don't want people winging it. Now, that doesn't mean that that a feel for the moment and a simplicity and a clarity in the moment can't be the best course of action. But overthinking it, I would rather someone actually be thinking about stuff and overthinking something than the opposite, whereas it's just they're they're just going by gut and they're just uh, and they're just winging it. It's interesting, too. You mentioned the Honduras game. And when a coach puts out a starting lineup and the game isn't going well and then he makes changes and the team improves and they get a result. When 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 people like that coach, then they, they highlight his ability to make adjustments and the changes that he made that led to the victory. When they don't like the coach, they focus on the fact that he got it wrong to begin with and he had to correct his own mistakes. So it's interesting with Berhalter. It's sort of how you interpret what happened in Honduras. It's sort of reflects how you feel about him overall. Yeah. And, you know, and as I said, in the State of the Union, uh, if if there comes a point where I'm really concerned about the way things uh, the way things are going, I, I will obviously and I have in the past make it very, very clear that uh, that a change needs to be made. Not that people are you know going to listen to uh, uh, to what I say. Um, when, when it when it comes to Greg Berhalter, do you buy the the argument that because he's still young and he's still relatively unexperienced to other coaches that could have been hired. But he's in charge of, I don't even think it's arguable at this point, the greatest collection of talent um, and depth of talent that we have ever seen from a men's uh, U.S. program. Do you buy the argument that he, while he may be a good coach, because he doesn't have the the cachet and the sexy type of background um, and the larger than life type of personality, that he, no matter what he does, he can't get the best out of these players in that they won't look at him the same way or even whether it's conscious or not, won't respect him in the same way that they would somebody else. Yeah, I wonder about that. You know, now you have all these players playing for these massive European clubs and these these top, top managers that are renowned uh, around the globe. And then they come back and play for Greg Berhalter for the national team. I, I, I do wonder what that dynamic is like. I think it is, uh, you know, I hope they respect him because, like I said, I think he's a good coach. But but I do wonder about that. I think it's a fair uh, issue to raise. And one more one more uh, point uh, that I just want to raise about the national team, even when we're in this kind of hiatus here for the next couple of weeks, so it'll, it'll come fast the next uh, the next window. But the next window has away games. Uh, we saw away games uh, in this in this past window, and you know I, I put out sometimes I uh, you know you have the um, the the cachet uh, the drafts of tweets right so so uh, the amount of drafts that I have in there is crazy the amount of <laughs> tweets that I don't send uh, and I just I in my older age I've become much more mature and I take a step back and take a breath before actually hitting hitting send but I have this backlog of tweets and I put out a few of them the other day that I had seen even after the U.S. won in Honduras that were relative to, and I, and I, I think I mentioned it last week on the, on the pod, but I, I do fear that um, we've built up this CONCACAF um, uh, road narrative so much that it is becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it, it seems now that it, it can be 
uh, at times this convenient crutch or worse, an excuse to justify a bad performance on the road. And once again, we have performance on the road coming. And I raise my hand. I am I am part of those that have uh, churned this narrative over the years and talked about how difficult it is. And, you know, so I took a step back and said, well, am I doing the players and this team a disservice by 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 doing this because yes it is absolutely unique the the CONCACAF World Cup qualifying environment and it is still difficult but let's be honest it is not as difficult and I mentioned last week the U.S. flies charter uh, they bring their chef they have new and improved stadiums the fields are better refereeing is better laws of the games have changed etc so it is challenging I just I don't want it for this team especially for this team for it to be a, a crutch and the weight of history so much that they can't see the forest through the trees. And so if, and I might be part of this, if we have created this generation of U.S. men's national team players that can only function uh, when the circumstances are ideal, Masi, we're in big trouble because if we're not careful, all these advantages that we provide from a young age now that we've worked so hard to provide, they can become disadvantages and all of the wonderful facilities and resources that they have. But I guess this is kind of an old man type of way of looking at things. And every generation looks back and says, look how easy you got it. And with that comes higher expectations. Anything, anything to that or, uh, or am I off in, uh, in left field on that? No, I agree. Uh, you know, no offense to your generation, but part of the reason why the U.S. struggled over the years in some of these places is because the U.S. wasn't that good. The talent disparity wasn't that big. And as the U.S. continues to develop here and produce the sort of talent that it's starting to produce, there's going to come a day where that talent gap between the U.S. and some of these CONCACAF countries is going to be so big that I'm sorry, they should be expected to go in there and take care of business and the talent should outweigh these all these other external factors. So I don't think that the Grant Walls and Jason Davises who, who love to lean into this point about how tough CONCACAF is because it makes them feel like savvier U.S. national team fans, they're not going to be able to hold on to that in perpetuity. I mean, maybe some people thought we were ready to change that outlook in this cycle. Perhaps given the inexperience of the team, maybe that was a little bit... Uh, wishful thinking. Uh, but I, I, as I said, over the next two, three cycles, at some point that mentality is going to have to change and a nil-nil draw away to El Salvador is going to have to be looked upon as just an unequivocally disappointing result. Well, look, as I said, I, I had written those before the result in Honduras and, and the, the result in Honduras was certainly not assured. And after that first half, there, there were there were it looked like it was going to be problematic and credit to uh, Greg Berhalter for uh, for making those changes. But we're going to see it again in this uh, in this next window. Go ahead. Just circle back to Berhalter for a second. I know this is a little bit off the beaten path, but I, I do. Once a year or so, this topic comes up and I go on a little bit of a rant here. Yes. It's something of a hot take of mine. I, I am not a fan of foreign uh, national team managers. And the reason I bring this up is because Berhalter critics often argue that the U.S. should hire some flashy foreign coach. And I don't know, it's, it's always been weird to me that when it comes to players, uh, there are all these strict eligibility rules to be able to represent a country's national team. And yet I could turn on the TV the next World Cup and Pep Guardiola could be coaching Brazil and Jurgen Klopp could be coaching Argentina. And th there's something that's always felt odd to me about that. I understand why FIFA doesn't restrict that because they want these minnows to be able to hire coaches from quote unquote proper soccer nations to help them develop. But I don't know, at the very top of the game, 
it's 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 a bit odd to me. So, you know, yes, people say, well, the rules are what they are and other countries are taking advantage of it. So why shouldn't the US and oh, you wouldn't want Jurgen Klopp as the US coach? Of course, but I, I'm never going to lean into that point too much because I'd be advocating something that I, I fundamentally find weird that I'm fundamentally against. How do you feel about that whole concept of foreign national team managers? Shouldn't part of being a good soccer nation be also the ability to develop coaches as well as players? Shouldn't 100%. World Cups yep. be a referendum to some degree on each country's ability to develop the right coach absolutely and look we're going to talk later in the pod uh about the difference between club and country um but when it comes to the international game when it comes to your national team it, it is a representation of who you are um and to a certain extent who you have been and who you are becoming and you know i i i, I hate to be a dead horse but you know the inferiority complex that we have and the insecurities specific to the U.S. soccer culture um, are notorious and well-known, and we've talked about them, and they manifest in a lot of different ways, including, uh, including this way. I don't buy that someone like Greg Berhalter um, can't coach the best players in the world. And I'm not saying that dynamics aren't important and relationships aren't important and, and your, your baggage, if you will, of where you have been can't help and hurt you if you if you have it or you or you don't have it. But understanding exactly who you are when you are representing that country, I think, is paramount. Is very very important, and oftentimes that comes through your leader, and in in many cases, that off the field, that is the coach. So I I don't whether it's the U.S. or anybody else. And look. You know, I had my success with a, a foreign uh, coach with Bora Milutinovic, okay? But it, and yes, there's a part of me that wants Greg Berhalter to succeed specifically to your point because he is American and that he's been through that entire process of being an American soccer person, both as a player um, and as a coach and just as a person in, in terms of his upbringing. And that context and that, perspective that he has, I think can be incredibly valuable and not just for the U S but for any country, uh, country and culture. And, and if I'm not mistaken, um, there has never been a world cup won by a, a team that doesn't have a coach of that nationality. I'm like, I think I'm right. Uh, on the men's side. Yeah, I believe right? that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there you go. Um, all right, Mossy, we got a lot of MLS stuff to get to. Uh, should we, uh, should we dig into that? Yep, let's do it. Because, you know, Mossy uh, actually got to me midweek and said, you know what? I think we've shortchanged MLS uh, over the last uh, uh, last couple of weeks. And so he really wanted to dive into what was going on. We worked uh, one of the last games of the weekend, a jam-packed, not just weekend, but week of Major League Soccer. Um, yesterday, we worked uh, Portland against LAFC. And we started off the show and ended the show talking about the moment that we are in. As I said, we're recording this on September 20th. And there is this there is this switch that happens in a major league soccer season as you get closer and closer to uh, the playoffs. And, you know, I said this last night on, on air, we in major league soccer, obviously, um, don't have promotion relegation. And I'm not, I'm not going into a pro rel conversation right now. But what I'm saying is that while we don't have the threat of relegation, we do have that playoff line, and that line is the demarcation between good and bad, if you will. Now, there's certainly elite teams that always expect to make the playoffs, and their expectations and their ambitions are much more to win MLS Cup. But that 
that line for a lot of teams separates if you've had a successful season or not. And we're getting down to this musical chairs moment where the music is going to stop and there's going to be teams that make it and teams that don't. Teams that are good, teams that are uh, bad, teams that have been successful and teams that have uh, failed. And we are definitely starting to see that and we will continue to see it ramp up here in the uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, what do you want to start with when it comes to uh, MLS news? Well, one team that I suspect will make the playoffs, and that wasn't evident for a lot of this season, but I think it is now, is Atlanta. To me, they are the biggest story in the league right now. Seven wins in their last eight. Uh, the latest victory was over DC United this past weekend. Uh, I, like everybody else, am, am blown away. I mean, that front four they have now with uh, uh, Marcelino Moreno, who I think has been the unsung yep. hero of this whole thing. Uh, and then you have Joseph Martinez. We knew this would happen. He's rediscovering his form. Uh, Luis Araujo uh, has been incredibly exciting signing, scored a phenomenal first goal against Cincinnati, and then had a play against DC United where if he had finished off that run, I mean, it would have made Maradona's second goal against England look like a tap-in. Um, and then even Ezekiel Barco has really come on. So that, that it's like a different player. is frightening. It's like a di- <laughs> and, and it's so wonderful to see, um, and, and not for the opposition, but for, for, the, for the neutral, that a, a, as close to a vintage Atlanta team as we have seen, and I know it's not, it's not a team that has a very long history, but when this team burst on the scene, it was attack, attack, attack. It was transition. It was incredible speed um, and just taking players on. And there was a moment yesterday, to your point about the unsung hero in Moreno, where it it, it looked like Miguel Amarone, um and Araujo also. The way that they their first thought is to go at people. Now, it's not a perfect team and they're still going to let in uh, letting goals. But I think that this is. This is a team that is feeling it. And we've seen this time and time again in Major League Soccer. We didn't necessarily anticipate Atlanta being in, in this position where you kind of creep into the playoffs and you got the hot hand and you play that. Um, and given their history, it would not surprise me not only if they make the playoffs, but if they have a good run, especially when you look at players that are playing so well. And Ezekiel Barco, he's finally come good. And this is a player that was under a lot of pressure, obviously a price tag attached to him. So this is good for Atlanta uh, and this is good for the league because they are becoming, dare I say it, must see MLS TV again. And there was a point where they were that, but then there was a point over the last couple of years where they were a dumpster fire. And it was not anything that was aesthetically pleasing on the eyes. And certainly from a result standpoint, they, uh, they weren't getting it. So it's fun to see, uh, to see what they are doing. Um, if you missed, by the way, uh, you know, um, Barco's uh, free kick, it was just wonderful. He is he is feeling it. And that whole run and gun type of style. That's my basketball reference, right? There's a run and gun uh, reference there um, <laughs> that uh, that we associated with previous Atlanta teams. It's back, baby. It's back. Well, it's mussy. Uh, well, on the flip side of that coin, uh FC Dallas are below the playoff line and they made a change. Uh, Luchi Gonzalez is out as their manager. What did you make of that decision? So it's, it's, it's baffling to me, okay? <laughs> um, not because he shouldn't be fired because this team has not been good, but because of what they set themselves up and have betrayed themselves. I'm talking about FC Dallas. Uh, and for those that maybe haven't followed, FC Dallas... Uh, it's an, it's an original MLS team, but certainly over the last, let's say, 10 years, they have leaned in heavily to development. They have hung their hat on the fact that they are developing 
the next generation of great American players and that they will move them on very, very quickly in terms of selling them. Some of them won't even play for the team. If you look at people like Weston McKinney, some of them will play for it very, very uh, uh, limited before they move on to Europe. And that is what the the team has based their success, their marketing and everything about. Now, I've had a go with them over over the years saying, well, how does that help me as a season ticket holder? I don't care about development. I want to see these players play for me and star for me and score goals and win games. So and once again, this goes back to without the threat of relegation hanging over their head, they have been able to do that. And they've they've been successful. I think not arguably, I think that if, if you if you look at who is the most successful, it is absolutely FC Dallas. And Luchi Gonzalez has been a, a huge part of that. I mean, he has grown up with many of these players. He has been fundamental in helping to create, and obviously now with the first team uh, and taking over in that capacity, giving these players these opportunities. But if I've missed something where they have changed their um, their mandate and they are trying to now be successful in uh, in MLS, that's fine. You probably should tell Lucci about that because he's probably turning around saying, hey, this is what this team has been and this is what we have done. Now, I don't know how involved he has been in in terms of the signings, because to be fair to FC Dallas, they have not gotten their foreign signings right. And that has been a big problem. So they've been able to nurture and foster and develop talent, but they haven't been able to bring talent in that has been uh, that has been good. So I, I'm hesitant to say it's unfair because I'm ultimately about wins and losses. But in this particular instance right now, from the outside, all right, unless there's something that we don't know about, and we'll find about uh, find out about it later. It just it's kind of a head scratcher. Yeah, I agree. I remember when Dortmund uh, fired Lucien Favre. I sort of raised this issue on the podcast of Dortmund have to figure out what they're trying to be, mm -hmm. and 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 it's a similar situation here. Uh, you know, FC Dallas did make the playoffs the last two seasons. So, uh, which this was Lucci Gonzalez's third campaign. He'd been in charge since 2019. And his first two seasons, they made the playoffs. So you could argue he did strike a reasonably good balance between developing players, selling them on, while still remaining fairly competitive. This is really the first campaign where they, they've really bottomed out and, and the results have been terrible. Um, so yeah, I mean, for a guy that's been with the organization all those years, coaching at the academy level and helping build up what's become the best academy in MLS, and then I up to this season, I thought it made a reasonably successful transition to being the first team coach, and now they have one bad season and he's out. We'll see what they bring in. I mean, it, it, it this must signal a, a total shift in philosophy then, because it, it would make no sense to get rid of him and bring in somebody else that's still gonna and still operate in the same way as a club. Look, ideally, you want to be able to do both things. You want to be able to develop talent, but you want to make sure that you're giving your customer, your season ticket holder and your ticket uh, buyers something that they can hold on to in a successful team. But if I have to choose between the two right now, I want to see FC Dallas go and win an MLS Cup. I want to see them do big, bold, beautifully arrogant things relative to everybody else. I want to see if FC Dallas, if this is a new direction um, and you know, they're, they're trying to do things differently. Fine. Then, then be big and bold. Um, last night on the, uh, the show, I gave my, uh, some disappointments. You know, I, I said, you know, when you're, uh, when your parents say, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Right. So this was the way that I, they looked at some of these, uh, things. I'm, I'm not angry at them. Well, I'm a little angry at some of them, but I'm not angry, but I'm disappointed. And the three of them were Austin, Cincinnati, and Columbus. Austin, um, Look, it's an expansion team. You knew that it was going to be difficult. They have incredible, uh, incredible fans that have supported them through not 
you know, thick and thin. There, there's been no thick. It's all been it's all been thin. Uh, wonderful stadium, obviously a wonderful community, and I want to see that uh, that do well. But it's not been good under under Josh Wolf. And I, th- I don't think he's going anywhere. I think they'll give him a chance. But you also have Claudio Reyna, who has plenty of experience. And both of those guys understand what the league is. But the signings haven't been great. And they haven't been competitive. Not only have they not been competitive in Major League Soccer, but they haven't been even competitive in Texas. And we talked about the, the Houston, FC Dallas, and uh, Austin situation. And Texas is not producing good MLS soccer uh, right now <laughs> from those uh, from those three. Uh, the second one is Cincinnati. And they are bordering on... Um, Chivas USA levels of <laughs> crappiness uh, right now. There are three coaches in their first three years. They, they also have a brand new stadium. They get a, a U.S.-Mexico game. So it is starting to be a, a mecca for soccer. And those people, I mean, hats off to them for continually coming out to see just, just, just horrible, horrible performances individually and collectively. And there'll be another coach. They'll be on their fourth coach uh, here. They just have not gotten things well. And it has the potential to be so great. So it's disappointing that you're not even being competitive in a league that bends over backwards to make teams at least be competitive with the salary caps and the restrictions uh, and the rules and regulations. You got to at least be competitive and they are anything but it is oftentimes just an easy out for uh, for uh, for teams. And then Columbus, Columbus is defending MLS Cup champions. All right. And they have not looked anything like that uh, this year. Now they're just struggling to make the playoffs. If you don't make the playoffs, the problem for Columbus is the asterisk that we talked about in uh, in 2020. It it starts to shine and get a little bit bigger. All right. I mean, it does, Mossy. It's not to them. They're not going to care. They're not going to care what I say. And they're going to celebrate the fact that they're MLS Cup champions. But if it happened in that specific and unique type of year, and then you followed it up looking nothing like uh, the team that you were, despite the expectations that you were actually going to get better. That's a problem. That's a problem in terms of the legacy. And that's a problem for uh, uh, for Caleb Porter and this uh, Columbus team. Well, first off, you mentioned Chivas USA. They did make the playoffs in 2006 under Bob Bradley, who the year before had been fired by the Metro Stars, as John Strong reminded us, us all last night. Yes, he uh, did. My wife loves that. <laughs> she loved that. Um, to be fair, I passed along that That's message. okay. <laughs> That's all right. Hey, it's, it's part of my history. Uh, I, I don't regret it. It was the right thing to do at the time. Bob and I have uh, talked about it over the years. And uh, believe me, he, 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 he went on to some great things after that. It raised an interesting question because... Because uh, John Strong wanted to know, has Bob Bradley ever missed the playoffs as he's in danger of doing this season with LAFC? And I said, well, technically no. But in 2005, he was fired by Alexi Lalas with three games left in the regular season. And the Metro Stars on the outside looking in, Mo Johnston took over, got them in the playoffs. So does that count as Bob Bradley missing the playoffs or not? So that's where John Strong and I were going back and forth on that and trying to figure out if... The reason why he was fired was to get us into the playoffs. That was the context in which that came up. And then John said it on the air. Uh, But yeah, listen, I got Columbus spectacularly wrong. I thought they were strong candidates to repeat as MLS Cup champs and perhaps even win the CONCACAF Champions League. That's how high I was on them after they signed Molino and Bradley Wright Phillips to go with Zardes and Zellerayan and Darlington Nagmi. But I thought they were absolutely loaded this season. And, and it's unbelievable to me that they are where they are. I mean, it's incredible. All right. A couple of quick things here uh, before we wrap up the uh, MLS news. Um, one, I watched the uh, Montreal Impact. Oh, sorry. Uh, Club de Foot de Montreal. Uh, uh, Montreal. I watched Montreal uh, take care of Chicago. I think the best transaction this year 
uh, has to be Jordi Mihalovic. Okay, and we saw him in Olympic qualifying. I'm not saying that he's a world beater, but he has kicked on. And yeah, he was playing against his former team and everything. But I just every single time he touched the ball against Chicago, it was with purpose. It was straight ahead. It was going at defenders and he caused problems because he made defenders have to do things. And oftentimes they just they just chopped him down. So uh, well done there. And I think a little of the credit has to go to Thierry Henry, who left at the beginning of the season, but was part of what the plan was uh, was going to be before, uh, you know, the, the pandemic situation uh, was too much for him. Uh, Chicharito uh, went to the game the other day, the one uh, one where Chicharito scored against uh, Houston. Um, it was a midweek game. It was nice to see him back on the field. Um, and he scored a really nice header, got up and snapped it in the uh, the corner. But not a great week for the Los Angeles Galaxy, although a good week if you look at uh, from a, a loon's perspective, because they then followed that tie against Houston, which he should be beating, uh, losing up in uh, Minnesota there to the loons. Three nothing. Minnesota just put a beating on them, right? Three or four. What was it? Three it or four? Three, three. nothing. Yeah, Oof. the Galaxy just three points from their last six games. You know, they're only five points above eighth. They need to be careful with teams like Portland and Minnesota and LAFC behind them and getting hot that they might not fall a few spots and, and could even fall all the way out of the playoffs. Oh so boy. they oh did, they needed to be careful with that. Now, you mentioned Chicharito staying with the Mexican theme. Uh, I, I mentioned at the start of the season that one of the more intriguing signings for me was Javier Lopez, a.k.a. Trofis, yeah. um, who San Jose signed. The story on, on, on this guy, uh, he came up with Chivas and was dubbed the Mexican Messi, which that always goes well when you put that tag on a of young course, player. Yeah. He's the black no nationality Messi. Um, so, of course, he didn't pan out, had all sorts of disciplinary issues. Did help Chivas win the CONCACAF Champions League in 2018 under Matias Almeida. He played some of his best ball under Almeida. So, Chivas looking to get rid of him. Almeida figures, let me take him. It's something of a reclamation project. He's shown flashes throughout this season, but he's really come alive here. Five goals in the last two games. He had this sensational hat trick. And, you know, everybody made a big deal about the Olympico goal. I thought the other two were yep. absolutely gorgeous in... Uh, a 4-3 loss to RSL, and then he follows it up with two goals in a 4-3 come-from-behind win over Austin. Yeah, you spoke recently about how Matias Almeida had become a little bit more pragmatic. We saw the old San Jose come back in the last two games, 4-3 loss, 4-3 win. But uh, so, yeah, they're, they're playing these crazy games again, and Trophies is flourishing. So, uh, you know, San Jose, an interesting team to watch down the stretch. They are, yeah. I mean, and they are, look, you can say what you want about them, but they're exciting. Uh, and they are they are interesting. And the fact that Chofis is, uh, is scoring. Did you see what uh, David Ochoa, the uh, goalkeeper for RSL, said? Yeah, he's a bit of a punk, huh, Ochoa? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that. I like that about him. So, uh, so, so San Jose, you mentioned four, three results, two, four, three results oh, oh, home. They lost four to three, uh, to RSL and then away they won four to three, uh, against, um, who was it? Austin, Austin right? Yeah. So Chofis is credited with a hat trick in the loss to RSL. And David Ochoa, uh, the goalkeeper for RSL, after the game, they asked him about because you know he did score this Olympico, uh, putting in the ball directly from a uh, a corner with that magical left foot that Chofis has. <laughs> David Ochoa, in, in the way that only David Ochoa can, said, "I put the ball into my net, so it was an own goal, and that guy, <laughs> which he's meaning Chofis, really didn't get a hat trick." So, <laughs> so that I mean, I guess technically he's right. Um, but the that you put it into your own goal, I don't know how that makes it any better for him. 
Um, but I like I like David Ochoa. I'm I'm not sure how great a goalkeeper he is, and uh, good luck with uh, he's El Tree's problem from an international perspective. But um, he sure gives good quote. Anything else, Mossy? And then let's just wrap up with uh, some continental stuff. Sure. Uh, the CCL final is set. Um, there will be no MLS team. I don't um, care. I don't care. Uh, America, 2-0 no winners over <laughs> Philadelphia to complete Moving a 4-0 no aggregate triumph. I will say, though, that's a misleading scoreline. Philadelphia played really well in this game. There was a fork in the road moment early in the second half. Bruno Valdez brought down Jubilco in the box. Stu Holden, who was calling this game, was convinced it should have been a red card. And they reviewed it, and they ended up determining yellow. But there was a moment there where they're reviewing the play, and Philadelphia has a penalty. And you're thinking, wow, if they give it the red card and they convert the penalty. All of a sudden, it's 1-0 early second half and a man advantage the rest of the way. Philadelphia could really do this. Uh, and lo and behold, they come back, they decide yellow card, and Montero misses the penalty. Great save by Ochoa. And that all the air went out of the balloon there. And then yep. America scored twice and, and ended up moving on. Th that's a weird team. I know their results are great on their Solari, but every time I watch them, I come away pretty underwhelmed. Um, and they're going to face uh, Monterey in the final. Monterey thumped Cruz Azul 4-1 in the second leg. Um, Rogelio Funes Morris scoring goals there. And so it will be Monterey versus America in the CCL final. The Mexicans get to puff their chest out. They, you know, they lost those two finals to the U.S. in the summer, but at club level, they still feel like they're well on top. Although you do have this League Cup final, League's Cup final on Wednesday uh, in Vegas, same location of the Gold Cup final where Seattle did uh, get to the uh, title game there. They had this dramatic semifinal win over Santos Laguna, Rui Diaz scoring in stoppage time. Uh, so Seattle will face Leon. Be interesting to see if Seattle won that game, how much juice they would get out of that in, in this whole sort of eternal League MX versus MLS uh, debate. You know, there's some people sort of mocking Seattle for taking this competition that seriously. What's it called again? The League's Cup, yeah. But, you know, th their argument... <laughs> I had to look it up. I think there's some truth to it is that, you know, you you oh, you want to build a trophy-winning yeah. culture. And yeah. anytime you win a trophy where you beat a League MX team in the final, for, for, how could anybody sort of look down on that? So I don't have an issue with Seattle taking this that seriously. I mean, this is the one that Atlanta won a couple years ago, right? No, the one they won was that Campeones uh, <laughs> Cup. Where I get confused. But to your point, it really doesn't matter. We can call it whatever it is. It's an opportunity to beat a uh, Liga MX uh, team. And there's a trophy on, uh, uh, on the offing here. And if you win, damn right. You hold that thing up. You get the confetti. You play this. Uh, you sing the song. And you do all that. And you celebrate. And, and rightfully so. Because uh, you've earned it. You're playing against a good team. And to your point, you establish a, an expectation and a and a level of excellence and Seattle's already done that, but you back it up with those, uh, with those trophies. When it comes to CONCACAF Champions League, uh, you know, this is, it's not a good thing from an MLS perspective. And so what changes it? Well, you spend more money. Okay. MLS teams we know are oftentimes playing with one foot behind their back. I don't think that it's important enough to the ownership of major league soccer to blow up the structure that has enabled MLS to last 25 years. Um, but that's how you do it. Uh, and when it really comes down to it, it's not just about spending money. It's obviously spending, uh, smart, smart money, but you know, it's, it, it is, if, it, if you if you think it's a problem, it's a problem that can be solved by making it equal, um, with MLS. And until that time, until that time, you'll have maybe some teams that, uh, find a way to do it, but with, you're not going to get that type of consistency until you are able to be on par in terms of spending with uh, with the teams that you are competing against. And that doesn't just apply to this, to CONCACAF Chancellor, it applies to a, a lot of different things out there. All right, anything else, Mossy? Oh, one more thing. Um, 
uh, the uh, New England Revolution continue to be sitting on top and they're going to win supporters shield with a, with a smoke and a coffee. Um, I was uh, I was on Twitter this morning uh, going back and forth with my uh, friend Real Me MP, and he was informing me that the rebrand of the New England Revolution and keep in mind, the New England Revolution's brand is one of the originals, the only original that's that is still left from 1996. And people are holding on to that. Uh, in terms of tradition, evidently it is going and it leaked a couple uh, months ago about what it looks what it looks like. So you can find it over there online. But there's another uh, indication that this is definitely going uh, that that uh, the, New, uh, the New England Revolution are going to be um, rebranded is that the folks over at the uh, the FIFA game evidently put out a player card with uh, heel on it with the new logo on it. So um if that is uh, if that is any indication, we are in for yet another rebrand and one for uh, the New England Revolution, which a lot of people say should have been done a long time ago. But there's certainly those that uh, that believe that it's just a classic and it should remain, especially since it's the last one. Uh, you can actually be unique in the fact that you have never changed. But we'll see what happens with that. But on the field, it's going great for the New England Revolution right, uh, right now. They are cruising. Well, we'll see how if they're able to parlay that into an MLS Cup come playoff time. All right. Good, Mossy. That's it. All right, let's take a real quick break. And when we come back, we'll take a trip around Europe. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, we're back. Uh, all right, all sorts of stuff going on when it comes to Europe, both in league and in terms of Champions League. Let's start with uh, the Champions League recap over there. Um, where do you want to start? Champions, which Luis Aguilar in the rundown spelled champion apostrophe S. It's, it's S apostrophe, uh, isn't it? If you're yeah. going to do it. Just a couple of thoughts on match day one. Um, I don't know if you, you caught the Barcelona-Bayern game. Look, we all knew uh, Barcelona this season. They're not among the elite in Europe. Uh, for the first time in a long time, they're not going to be much of a factor in the Champions League. But it was still startling yep. to, to watch this game. How the mighty have fallen. Yeah. Uh, not the fact that Bayern went in there and won 3-0 because Bayern on their day are capable of doing that to anybody, but just how ho-hum it felt. Right. Uh, it, 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 it was it, a fait accompli. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know how was, you say that in Spanish, but it was... It was, it was just such a mismatch. Uh, Bayern never got out of second gear. It just felt like them playing some second or third tier team in Europe and just going in there and taking care of business. How much of the the demise of of the once great Barcelona is nobody wants to lose, nobody wants to be bad, but do you think in the in the halls of Barcelona this was anticipated and is, is expected right now, or do you think that they're looking and saying, oh "Boy, we really screwed this up." I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there. The hierarchy at the club still want to try to be ultra competitive uh, this season, uh, while the manager, Ronald Koeman, really wants to lean into the fact that this is a rebuilding season and a youth movement now. And 
you know, with that game 2-0 in the second half, he was bringing on kids who have, have barely played and putting them on the field against Bayern in a Champions League match, which was really a signal that, hey, we're not even trying to compete here. This is just about giving young guys experience. And supposedly the, the hierarchy wasn't too thrilled by that. And it feels like that sends the wrong message. Hey, we're still Barcelona here. We're not waving the flag on this season. And so there's a bit of a disconnect there. Uh, you know, and their their party line is still, hey, we're going to get some players back. Aguero, Anansu Fati, Usman Dembele, Coutinho now is working his way back. I thought he actually had a decent run out in that game when he came on in the second half. And so they feel like there's still enough talent there that they can be competitive this season, while Koeman seems to be of the mind that, no, this is all about giving young players uh, They're like FC Dallas. Barcelona's <laughs> like FC Dallas. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, that's good to know. Uh, what else? Uh, Man City and uh, Leipzig? You want to go well, there? Well, yeah. I mean, Jesse Marsh, we, we could... I was going to talk about Jesse also when we did Bundesliga, yeah. but, um, you know, listen, uh, no shame in losing away to Manchester City. Crazy game, six to three. And Kunku has a hat trick, but it's uh, for, for, for not. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is one that you, you assume they were going to lose. Uh, but, you know, I don't know, the, the fashion that they lost conceding six goals, does that make you think even uh, yeah, less I mean, about it's the not situation? A good, it's not a good look <laughs> and a continued bad look. It's a continued bad look for, for Jesse Marsh. Like I said, no shame in losing to, to Man City. But the way that it happened and and there was nothing that he could necessarily do. But you kind of want to keep that one close just for appearances sake, especially given the pressure you're on in, uh, in your domestic fight. Uh, Liverpool, uh, great game, beat AC Milan 3-2 at Anfield. Almost the same score as that epic final in Istanbul, which was 3-3 in 2005. Uh, Bruges held PSG to a 1-1 draw. We'll have more on PSG when we get to Ligue 1. But yeah, this was the long-awaited first match in which Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe started together. And it was a, it was a big disappointment. And those issues continued at the weekend, which is why I said we'll, we'll, we can get into that more in depth there. But yeah, this was actually is the game. Is it fixable, I you think, after seeing that? Well, uh, we can get into it here. I, mean, right. I think that, you know, it's just a reminder that uh, when, when clubs start stockpiling talent and people start coming up with their projected lineups and, and they, you know, they think it's like fantasy where you could, as long as you could stick a player here, another one there and another one here. And, and it, it's it all on paper, it all seems compatible and there's not going to be any issue. But you forget that players aren't just going to stand in one place during a game. They, they like to float around and occupy different parts of the field. And so you're finding that with ne Neymar, Messi, and Mbappe, they are getting in each other's way a little bit because Neymar has, his game has changed since the days of Barcelona when he was more of an out-and-out -out left winger. And he now likes to float to the middle of the field and function more as the playmaker. And he's gotten used to playing that way. While Messi is nominally a right winger, but now he's, he spends the whole game in the middle of the field. And so they are getting in each other's way a little bit. Mbappe is not that sort of traditional center forward in the Luis Suarez mold. He's a guy too that likes to float and drop down to the wings and do different things. And so sort of getting getting the balance right there, it, it's been a bit tricky for them. And, and there are already some questions about whether Pochettino is the right guy for that because, you know, he likes things to be nice and tidy and really rigid tactically. And with this sort of team, you have to be a bit more flexible with that. Uh, you know, you want some semblance of organization, but you also want to make sure you give these guys freedom. And, and so getting that mix right, is it's been a, a bit tricky so far this season. So Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's, uh, it's like a menage a trois, right? On the surface, it sounds great. And in theory, it sounds great. In practice, not so, not so much. So they better get it right, my friend. Well, and, and the other interesting result, and it connects to 
PSG because I'm about to make this point that applies to both clubs. Manchester United, they they lose away to Young Boys. Ronaldo gets uh, a goal for United, but uh, Jordan Pifak with a stoppage time winner, virtually the last kick of the game. Jesse Lingard, this horrible pass back to the goalkeeper, which Pifak intercepted like, you know, it's fine. and Take put it, it in. Take it. And already some some early questions about Sochar, which, uh, look, I, I've said this before. I think he was the perfect manager after Mourinho to to bring a sense of calmness to that club. And I think he's actually done a pretty good job up to now, but this job might have gotten a little too big for him. Uh, and, you know, especially you look at England when, you know, City have Pep and Liverpool have Klopp and, and Chelsea have Tuchel and you have Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It does feel like you're bringing a knife to a gunfight. And, and certainly I, I don't see him leading them to the Champions League title. And I mentioned already some early questions about Pochettino. Zinedine Zidane is sitting out there <laughs> and you wonder with both these clubs, you know, w- when is a temptation going to be too big? to maybe go make that move because uh, certainly with PSG, I mean, he would seem really adept at managing a team of stars like that and and getting them all on the same page. And even with United, he's already coached Ronaldo before the great success. So I just wonder if Zinedine Zidane might be the X factor that's lurking here in European football this season. And and these two teams might be the ones that might... Has there ever been a coach that more consistently uh, has been questioned and maligned than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I mean, at, at what point does it, does it, I, I probably never, it never transitions to, okay, he's the right person. I don't think he's ever going to be the right person for a lot of people out there. And so it's almost, it, it, it's almost as if he, he can never have success there. So just make the change and get it done <laughs> with it. That so many people so seem, uh, seem to want. So he's not going to, he's not going to suddenly morph into everybody's uh, right pick. So, all right. What else, Masi? Um, yeah, I mean, and then the only other score worth noting is that Real Madrid beat uh, Inter 1-0 at the San Siro. Inter, though, uh, was was the better team, really dominated large portions of this game. Courtois stood in his head, and then Rodrigo came on late and got uh, the winner. It was a play where Valverde passed it to Camavinga, who passed it to Rodrigo, who put it away, and Vinicius had a great second half, and Militon was a rock at the back. So it really had Real Madrid touting this youth movement of theirs. Um, so Ancelotti gets a, a win over Inter, which I'm sure was sweet for him. Um, but, uh, I mean, that's it from a Champions League perspective. We can transition to... Yeah, let's to, go to uh, Premier League, right? Uh, so, staying with United, they pick up a 2-1 win, win over West Ham. Lingard then redeems himself by scoring totally redeems a late himself. winner. Ronaldo <laughs> also found the back end in this game. Him and Bruno Fernandes, you could tell, already have a great understanding. Bruno Fernandes all season long is going to be floating these yeah. balls for Ronaldo to make these runs, and, and that's going to be beautiful to watch. Um, but What you know, about the end of that game, though? What about the... The, the penalty, right? Yes. Uh, we got to talk about this, right? Uh, what did you make of it? Well, explain to the folks first. No, no, no. You go, you go. Well, you're, you're subbing. What was it? Noble? Is that, the, is that who they, uh, yep, they yep. subbed in? So it's at the end of the game, right? It's uh, two to one at that point, right? There's a penalty. And you have the opportunity to get your point. And you subbed in Noble, who obviously is coming in cold um but is your best converter of penalties right so it's it's a specialist if you will um and as is often the and by the way De Gea isn't great at saving penalties so (laughs) the numbers made it seem like absolutely the thing to do and this is where we get into overthinking things and 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 feel of the game you know there are plenty of players that will tell you that it's it's not as if 
you're having, you know, in, in American football, you have the kicker, the specialist come in. He or she's warming up on the sideline, doing exactly what they can do that nobody else can do. And they come in in that moment and they've been trained to to do that. This is a little bit this is a little bit different. But the and you, and you knew that if you make that choice as a coach, you're going to live and die by it. However, I, I completely understand why that was done. Unless you have faith in somebody that is on the field, either because it's just a sense that you have or your numbers are backing you up or something like that, then you hedge your bets. So I, I didn't see that as such a crazy thing to do. Um, you know, this is, this is not a team that is rife with all sorts of incredible talent and huge personalities that you can put in that position. So I, I didn't think that it was as bad as many, you know, I, I saw Lenniker and, and others talking about how they couldn't fathom and understand that type of, uh, that type of decision. Well, it seems very straightforward to me, that type of decision. These are the numbers. This is the person that, that, that did it. And so I'm going to put him in position that he has traditionally shown he is capable and successful. And it didn't work. And the soccer god said, well, this is the time where it's not. But, you know, and, and I know, you know, a coach in the moment is going to say, yeah, I made the right decision. And I think it, I, I do think it was the right decision. I don't know from from the outside. What you what you see? Yeah, and and teams very often bring in a guy at the end of extra time uh, to take a penalty in a shootout. Um, so this was, but it, but it's no different than bringing any other substitute in. In that, if you need a goal, if you are searching a goal, you put in a player that is that is proven and you believe can do that job. This was just a specific job that he was put in to do. And he didn't do it, not because he couldn't, not because the data and the uh, and the history didn't show that he is capable of doing it. It was just it was just that moment. I actually think that in that moment, he like I said, he hedged his bets and he did what was best for that team in that moment. And it just didn't work out. So what else? Uh, well, the other big result, Chelsea, three uh, nil. Winners away to Tottenham. They, they are looking just rock, rock solid. Uh, Liverpool took care of Crystal Palace 3-0. Uh, City held uh, by Southampton 0-0. And I, I know this might seem like an overreaction, but I do foresee City potentially being kind of feast or famine uh, this season. They just had a Champions League game. We mentioned where they scored six goals. They've also had a couple of 5 nils this season. But, you know, that playing without a center forward, sort right. of goals by committee approach, there's going to be days where it's going to click and it's going to be look look beautiful and they're going to run up big numbers on, on people. But I, I do foresee certain games against certain opponents where you don't have that target guy in the box where, you know, they, they could struggle. And I, I actually kind of feel like Liverpool and Chelsea look like the team's most adept this season to just churn out points and, and perhaps be the two fighting it out at the end. I, I mean, of course, City United will be in that mix as well. But uh, there is something to be said for having that guy like a Lukaku or Ronaldo or I guess the Liverpool equivalent that would be Mo Salah was off to another great start this season you know that 20 goal a season score that you can count on week in week out to get you goals versus what City are going for this season which really is a sort of committee approach of not having that out and out goal score. So how much of this is or how big of a concern is this to you for example if I say you, know, you kind of glossed over Chelsea which right now is sitting at the top of the league and just is a juggernaut uh, right now is is Man City better than Chelsea? 
I know uh, not in, ter- in terms of points, they're not, but if, no, just I, I think of- I think Chelsea have a more complete team. Okay. Their their ability to sign Lukaku while City were unable to sign Kane, I think, tilted at Chelsea's way. Okay, are they better than second place Liverpool? Man City is Man City better than Liverpool? I'd say those teams are about equal okay. this season. Right. And then Man- Manchester United, would you say they're better than Manchester United? About equal, okay. I think. I'd say they're better. I, I think they're better than Manchester United. I, I would agree with you in terms of the, and I, I would even put them over over Liverpool. But you know, Chelsea so far, and, and it's still early days right now. But they look, they just look solid, and they look like they they feel they've bought in all that kind of stuff. So. All right. What else? I agree. Must? And by the way, I mentioned Lukaku. The goals for Chelsea this weekend were Thiago Silva and Gola Conte on a deflected shot and Rudiger. So it's not like, you know, uh, so they, they can be resourceful too and get goals from, from different positions. But they do have that guy up there when they need it who yeah. generally And Lukaku does a whole lot more than just score goals. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he takes a lot of attention uh, and pressure. Um, Next up, Serie A, which the, the one result uh, worth highlighting here is Juve held to a 1-1 draw at home by AC Milan. They have just two points from their first four games. They're way down there at the bottom of the table. Um, Inter, who I mentioned, I've been very impressed by Inter so far this season. They, they, sh- they should have beaten Real Madrid. Like I said, they dominated large portions of that game. We're just unlucky that Courtois stood in his head. And then they followed that up with a 6-1 thrashing of Bologna. Dzeko and Lautaro both finding the back of the net. Um, and they're at the top of the table with 10 points alongside AC Milan. Juve at two. I know it's early. We're only four rounds in, but eight points is a not insignificant gap already there. Right. So yeah. I'm, I'm starting to wonder about Juve this season. And we all kind of wrote off Inter's ability to repeat, but they still look kind of like the best team to me. Yeah. I mean, it is jarring to look at the Serie A standings here and see where Juventus is. And um, by the way, uh, Gianluca Busio's Venezia team, although they lost at home, he did assist uh, on a uh, set piece there. But it's going to be a struggle for Venezia through the year. But evidently, it's going to be a struggle for Juventus unless something drastically changes here. But they are right now in the relegation zone. Uh, amazing, amazing times for uh, for Juve. And Wesson McKinney did not get in a new sub in that game. So I don't know what, what to read into that. Well, but. we'll see what, uh, what he's all about. <laughs> and we'll see what he looks like here in a couple of weeks when he comes back. Uh, well, I'm assuming that he's going to be invited back to uh, the window. Uh, next up, La Liga. Uh, Real Madrid, uh, dramatic come from behind win over Valencia. They were second best for a lot of this game. Trailing uh, 1-0 late. And then Benzema assisted Vinicius for the equalizer. Vinicius assisted Benzema for the winner. Um, so on the one hand, you know, they're, they're not playing that well. I mentioned they got outplayed by Inter in the Champions League. They got outplayed by Valencia here. But they're finding ways to win. So uh, right now, the Madrid media seems to be stressing the positive on that. And they're giving Carlo Ancelotti a lot of credit for these late substitutions that they think are turning around these games. You know, I was thinking about Ancelotti this week because, you know, he was coaching Everton last season. And we all kind of thought he might be done as far as that that top top level and yet Real Madrid go and get him and and he's getting all this praise and off to a good start this season they're atop the La Liga race so it's really been kind of, he's reinvigorating his brand so far this season when you say and we, we, we do this often when you say a team isn't playing well but they're getting results is that is that because you expect them to do to do both or is that are you saying that with a worry that at some point not playing well is also going to result in you not getting the results. Yeah, the second thing. You know, there's a difference between playing 
poorly and playing pragmatically. And I think Real Madrid are setting out in these games to be on the front foot and to dominate and are Got just it. not able to do it, uh, but are somehow pulling out results okay. with late goals. So you wonder if that's sustainable. Okay. Uh, I, I mentioned Real Madrid are, are top of the league. Uh, that's because Atletico Madrid were held to a nil-nil draw by Bilbao. This is on the heels of a nil-nil draw at home against Porto in the Champions League, which is, is leading to some questions about Simeone. Uh, you know, this might be a random one, but there's a... NFL running back named Leroy Horde, who actually played at Michigan as well, was the MVP of the 1989 Rose Bowl. There, there was an old saying about him that if you need a yard, he'll give you three. If you need five yards, he'll give you three, which is to say he is what he is. Right. Like You can't expect more than, you know. And I, I kind of wonder if that's Diego Simeone as a manager. Now, you, you look at the macro there. The guy is the greatest coach in Atletico history. They're going to build a statue of him right. outside the stadium. You know, the, the, you can't argue with the result. He's won multiple La Liga titles, multiple Europa League titles, been to multiple Champions League f- finals. Incredibly unlucky not to win those. Lost one on penalties, another that he led in the 93rd minute. But, you know, they have tried to be more expansive in recent years and gone out. They spent all that money on Jerome Felix. This summer, they bring back Griezmann. And yet, it's still everything is nil nil one nil grinding it out and i just wonder if you could give that guy whatever roster and there's just a certain way he knows how to coach and a certain way his teams are going to play that's the question right so (laughs) is he well i don't think it's a question that he is a great coach for atletico madrid is he a great coach though and I guess we'll never know unless we kind of see him in a different environment and circumstance. Exactly. That, so. That's what people wonder why. How is he still there? You know, you think a coach like that would have, no disrespect to Atletico mm-hmm. Madrid, but would have made that step to a big Premier League club. But I think there is this question hanging over whether he could adapt to a different situation. Right. But, but is it is it with what Atletico wants to maybe become, even given his past success, is it is having him then still limiting in terms of, you, you know, that three yards? You're still only going to get that three yards. At some point, doesn't Atletico Madrid want to get that fourth and fifth yard? And if they can't do it with him, then in a strange way, this this icon is holding them back from being the best version <laughs> yeah. of themselves. Uh, I, as long as he keeps trending out results. I mean, they won La Liga last season, so you can't yeah. argue. But if they ever have any sort of dip... You wonder if yeah. then the hierarchy would say, well, now the results aren't so good to justify this type of style. So, you know, um, l- let me just slip in Bundesliga here, which Luis Aguilar inexplicably didn't include in the rundown. Uh, Bayern, uh, 7-0 winners over Bochum. The, the shock here is that Lewandowski only got one of the goals. And He's then spreading the love. He's spreading the love. Went out and got two in Dortmund's 4-2 winner of Union Berlin. So they're now tied atop the scoring charts with seven apiece. That's going to be a really fun race to follow all season. And then Leipzig held to a 1-1 draw by Cologne, which does nothing to alleviate the pressure on Jesse Marsh. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. Um, and then Liga. And then we'll end with Liga, uh, where the big game there this weekend was... PSG, uh, Messi's home debut. Uh, they faced Lyon. Uh, PSG did eke out a 2-1 win. They fell behind on a goal by Ali Wagner favorite Lucas Paqueta and then equalized on a uh, Neymar penalty. Very, very dodgy decision, I thought, <laughs> to award PSG the penalty. Neymar earned it and then converted it, which is interesting in and of itself that right. he's taking the penalties. Messi, by the way, is, is taking the free kicks. He smacked one off the, the crossbar in this game. And then uh, Icardi gets uh, the winner uh, late in stoppage time. But the big story here, Messi subbed out in the 76th minute, I believe it was. Clearly not happy. Didn't shake Pochettino's hand. Sat on the bench with an annoyed look. Didn't really celebrate the winning goal that 
much. So, I mean, early on here, we're already. <laughs> hey, you're not in Kansas anymore uh, or you're not in Barcelona anymore. Uh, uh, you know, this is. Uh, and this is and again, to circle back with Pochettino, I already mentioned some of the tactical issues and trying to fit these three and, and wondering if he's maybe the right coach to figure that out. And also just from a personality standpoint, it seems like he really wants to stamp his authority there. He took his sweet time sort of incorporating those guys. Right. Uh, and then Messi's first game, everybody thought he was going to start. He brought him off the bench. When he brings him on, he brings him on for Neymar so he doesn't let the three play together. Then he, he rested him again after the international break. Okay, that was understandable. They had just played in South America. And then now he's subbing Messi out of a game where it's 1-1 and they're chasing a goal. Um, I don't know if he's just trying to show who's boss there, but you wonder if if this is the right approach here. It's, I mean, you it's know, management, though. I mean, you know, just because <laughs> this is, I mean, this is arguably the greatest player ever to play the game. But what has made him the greatest player ever to play the game is it is personal to to him. And if you don't understand, just because a player is older and more experienced doesn't necessarily mean in those moments that they are more mature or they take it any less personal when they are taken off the field. And so that has to be sorted out ahead of time. You need to go to him and say, listen, this is what I want you to do. And there might come a point where I need to uh, make a change. So at least you've planted the seed. So there's the understanding and you you get buy in from him. So you don't have this awkward moment where we're reading body language or, or looks here. Or the camera's here. Or, oh, there's already a, a problem with the that the, 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 the dynamic because by the way if it's between Messi and anybody else you're gonna lose that one yeah I, I keep thinking back to when Messi Neymar and Suarez played together at Barcelona and it seemed like they each played 90 minutes every game and I know Luis Enrique deep down there were situations where tactically he thought to himself it might make sense might make sense to take one of these guys off we're protecting a lead here and they're not helping out much defensively but he kind of saw the bigger picture on that and said you know I'm not, I'm not gonna risk uh, alienating any of these guys because I know 99% of the time we're better off with all three of them on the field happy and feeling good about themselves and they ended up winning a treble that season so and guess, practically you know. you're going to get if it if it works great you look you look great but if it doesn't work you you look like an ass okay <laughs> and so nobody's ever going to fault you for keeping on Messi or right, keeping yeah. on Neymar <laughs> on the field so all right what else anything else Masi? uh that's it uh and now uh luis aguilar did me a little solid here he threw in the copa libertadores uh can i do a quick give little a, do, yeah give a give a give the folks a little uh little rant here. uh so the semifinals uh get underway uh this week uh on tuesday which is the day this podcast will be released uh we have an all brazilian affair palmeiras who are the defending champions will host atletico minero in the first leg atletico their their striker tandem by the way is diego costa and hulk uh it's very important not now. to love brazilian clubs bringing back these these players towards the end of their careers where they think can still contribute um and so that's going to be an interesting one I, I would make atletico slight favorites there they're they're currently the leaders in the brazilian league they're playing very well this season uh and so i, I if i had to guess i think they get to the final there but palmeiras aren't to be discounted defending champions of course and uh, very good as well and then the other semifinal begins on wednesday flamengo uh, host uh, Barcelona Guayaquil of Ecuador at the Maracana. Uh, Flamengo, uh, who, speaking of signing older players, they just signed David Luiz. We'll see if maybe he features in. He just got there, so I don't know. And and by the way, they're, they're, they've been linked with Danny Alves, who just rescinded his contract with uh, Sao Paulo. Uh, and they are overwhelming favorites here. They, they did suffer a shock uh, home defeat to Gremio this past weekend in league play, and they're, they have some injury problems. Arascaeta, Felipe Luiz uh, might miss this game, but I, I think it's a 90% certainty they move on, which would set up a second straight all-Brazilian final. Um, so we'll see. I, I, the Brazilian media is already 
the final scheduled for in Uruguay, Montevideo, and the Brazilian media, assuming it's going to be an all Brazilian final, is already starting to like, well, given the pandemic, shouldn't the game be in Brazil if yeah, it's two right? Brazilian clubs? How about moving it to Brazil? So there's already some of that chatter. So we'll see. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, but so that's where we are on the Libertadores. Uh, Barcelona Guayaquil, the team that's facing Flamengo, they do have an American. Uh, I saw Matt Doyle's been tweeting about this. Some guy named Michael Hoyos. Uh, I don't know if that name rings a bell at all, but uh, nevertheless, there is an American. I'm a uh, MLSista, so I really don't care about uh, <laughs> Barcelona, uh, Guayaquil. Uh, all right. Uh, all right. So that was a good roundup of all sorts of uh, things there. We'll take another quick break. And when we come back, oh, yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go away. All right, we are back. And, uh, you know, as uh, as some of you that uh, are paying attention know, we have uh, added a opportunity for folks to get in touch with us with our uh, hotline, if you will. And that is 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. You can leave a message. Uh, you can still do it in the more, I guess, traditional way over social media. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi and uh, you send us your comments, questions and concerns as a bunch of people did. And so we took uh, a couple of audio questions and a Twitter question. And the first one, I think, is from yeah Peter from California. And I think he has a question regarding the aforementioned Jordan Pifok. Let's see what uh, Peter has to say. Hey, Alexi and Rossi, this is Peter from uh, San Francisco, California, kind of middle, middle of the state on the coast. I, I love the podcast. You guys do a great job of kind of bringing the U.S. side to things. Uh, I have a question kind of surrounding uh, today's Tuesday, the Champions League games that happened today. Uh, Jordan Pifok for Young Boys scored that uh, kind of, Kind of tap in, but great shot on De Gea goal to beat young boys or to beat Manchester United for young boys. And I was wondering, kind of, because he kind of seems to have been overlooked in the uh, U.S. striker role. What, where do you see him kind of fitting in behind that Daryl DJ, that Ricardo Pepe? Is he uh, just a bench option? Do we see him getting any better? Uh, thanks so much, and you guys do a great job. Thanks so much. Bye. All right, uh, Peter. All right, so there there is a lot of interest in Jordan Pifok, uh for a number of reasons. One, he's got a great name. Um, two, he scores goals. And you, you uh, heard Mossy talking about earlier, uh, even in Champions League, uh, he is finding a way to score goals. And one of the other big reasons why we are talking about him is because the U.S. is in dire need of somebody up uh, up top. I do think that he is going to continue to be part of this this group. Does he get called in in this next window? Ah, did he do enough over the summer to uh, to warrant that? I don't know. I think it's going to be real close because you're also going to have Jossie Zardes coming back into the fold. He scored over the weekend, so he is back healthy, and we know uh, he's one of. Uh, uh, Greg Berhalter's go-to types of players. I, I I like him. I don't think that he is necessarily the answer. I don't think that he is the game changer. And once again, this is nothing I'm saying about Jordan Pifak that I haven't said about pretty much everybody else. There is still nobody that even comes close to the impact and the importance of someone like Josie Altidore. And that's, I think, what we're all kind of waiting for. Can he grow into that? Eh, maybe. I, I, so... I kind of want to see. I, I am intrigued by him. And that's not a ringing endorsement of him, but that's just to say I do think that uh, that we will see him in the future. And certainly, if he continues to score uh, to score goals for uh, uh, for his club, 
Um, and we continue to have this vacancy up top uh, from a national team, there could be problems. You see Mossy uh, PFOC playing a part going forward? Uh, I, I see greater upside with guys like Pepe yeah. and DK. So he might be in the mix, but I don't, I don't see him ever emerging as the guy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he necessarily puts the fear of that. From a U.S. men's national team perspective, from what we've seen, and it's still limited, but doesn't yet put the fear of God uh, up there. Um, okay, let's uh, let's go to a Twitter question here. Mossy, what, uh, who is this from? What, At, what's this about? Uh, 216 underscore born asks, Pulisic may not be available against Panama as the U.K. seems to classify Panama as a COVID red zone. Oof. Uh, I guess that's a question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it's, well, it's a question and a comment uh, about, you know, uh, soccer in the time of COVID. And we all know that the ability to adjust, even in normal times for a, a team is a, is, a, is a talent and an acquired skill and important, and even more so in the times that we are, uh, that we are living in. You know, Masi, you talked last week about, you know, the situation with your Brazil, uh, Brazil national team. I don't think that this is necessarily going to change. And other teams and other competitions are going to deal with it as countries and cultures look and in this case stamp others with a seal of approval or disapproval and you know that's that's when it gets beyond the actual sport part and yes you can get special dispensation and uh you know you try to do those things but i don't i don't see how you you change it unless it goes to the top of the top of the government, which it certainly can from a U.S. perspective. The, the, the thing about it is, I think, yes, the U.S. team is better when Christian Pulisic is on the field. You don't need me to tell you that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S. team can't function and be very successful even without Christian Pulisic. I think we have seen, you know, first off, Christian Pulisic is a seminal, uh, uh, is a, um, a, a talent the likes of which we haven't seen. Okay. We don't get to see that talent a lot, unfortunately, because of his injury problems. And if you add now the potential of travel bans or, um, you know, certain places that he can't go. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a problem. But whereas in the past, I would have feared that I think that what's happened over this past year has given me greater hope that the U.S. can accommodate that and adjust to a game without Christian Pulisic. I don't want to go great stretches without Christian Pulisic, especially when it gets to, you know, we talked a little bit about the ideal situation. That's when someone like Christian Pulisic, I think really, really will flourish. And you got to go through all the crap in order to get to that ideal situation. And I want him to be able to, uh, to be there. But I don't know, Masi, uh, do, do, you see, do you see it as a real problem in terms of qualifying and getting the results that we need if Christian Pulisic isn't because of this or any other reason? It could be, uh, you know, injury too. How important uh, is he, I he's guess? He's certainly a very important player. Now, if they have all everybody else in place, then I think they, they should still be able to get results against uh, these CONCACAF teams. But yeah, it's a difficult situation. Uh, as you mentioned, Brazil dealt with it in this last window. And, you know, there is this uh, FIFA rule that if a club doesn't release a player during a, a FIFA international break, then they can't use the player themselves for X amount of days. And now the federation that was denied the player has to 
lodge a complaint for FIFA to then enforce that rule. And that's what happened with Brazil. They did lodge a complaint. And so FIFA uh, was going to hold the Premier League clubs to that and prevent them from uh, fielding the Brazilian players in the subsequent weekend. But it was all a bargaining tool by the Brazilian Federation to force a resolution here. And they've now been assured that they those players will be released for the October window. So I don't know if the U.S. got caught in the same situation here with, with Pulisic, if the U.S., Federation would want to go to war with Chelsea and, and uh, how much they're going to try to get FIFA involved. I don't know. So it's, it's a whole situation that we're all dealing with here that's, that's made things very complicated. Well, knock on wood, it gets uh, sorted out and we have, uh, or Greg Verhalter has everything at his disposal in terms of the, uh, the arsenal. And we talked so much about all of the talent and the, and the depth that we have. I hope that uh, come this next window, everybody's healthy, first and foremost, and everybody is legal i guess in terms of being able to be uh to be picked um okay we got another audio question here who's this one from mossy uh this is uh tim from texas all right i think tim's talking about and i think i alluded to it earlier in the pod national team versus domestic club teams uh in this this world that he's creating let's see what tim has to say hey guys tim here from colleen texas uh i love both of you guys love the show mossy uh you need more airtime for sure um, so my question today is concerning international teams versus domestic clubs. And it's a crazy hypothetical, but if you were to get the best English team, whichever team you think it is, whether it's Chelsea, uh, Man City, whoever, and have them face off against the England national team, who do you think would win? And do you feel like there's like a obvious answer? And also, do you feel like there's obvious answers for other countries like MLS, the United States national team, and uh, La Liga, and, and so on and so forth? So. I know it's crazy hypothetical, but I thought it might be fun to ask. Thanks for all you guys do. You guys are awesome. Have a good one. All right, Tim. Um, I guess the obvious and quick answer would be uh, that if this were to happen, and we've seen very, very limited and selected moments of this, but if this were to happen, if, for example, Bayern Munich were to participate in the World Cup or from a more domestic perspective, if the U.S. men's national team were to be a team in um, in Major League Soccer, where they would finish. Look, one of the one of the inherent in a national team is the limited amount of time that you have. Um, and so you have to make the most of it. The ability to gel and your ability to gel very, very quickly is paramount. And the that manifests on the field in oftentimes seeing Teams become pragmatic. Teams become as simple as they possibly can just because they don't have the time. And so the, the clockwork and the coordination and the communication and the understanding that only comes from spending day in and day out with your, um, with your teammates, that isn't on display. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have beautiful play. As a matter of fact, sometimes it even lends itself because the more time that you spend, the more successful you are and that includes defending and so defenses in particular are able to coalesce and therefore make it that much more difficult and in the international game because you don't have a whole lot of time sometimes there's more space and there's more opportunity out there for players uh, to do different things i have no doubt as i said that bayern munich playing in a world cup would challenge for a world cup okay because first off, they're some of the great, greatest players in the world. Also, those great players in the world have been together and understand exactly how they want to play, much more so than pretty much 
all of the national teams uh, out there. Then when it comes to someone like the U.S. men's national team, if you were to throw whatever your best 11 is, and I know there's a lot of debate, if you were to throw them into Major League Soccer, and now this is a day-in, day-out type of existence and a week-in and week-out game type of existence, they would, they would, ha- they would take time to coalesce. Um, and who knows if they would? And ultimately, yes, I think that they would be a, a good team in the league, but I'm not necessarily sure that they would beat a highly functioning, rested, um, in this point, or this year it would be Seattle Sounders or New England Revolution. It just doesn't quite work that way. And that's what I love about the international game. I love that it's, that it's the same game, but it is so separate. And you can have one of the greatest players in the world and going to the national team could be not just a great equalizer, but oftentimes a step and maybe even at times, depending on who you're talking about, multiple steps down and seeing that person in a completely different type of environment and circumstance and seeing what they are. Uh, it can be jarring, but it's also fascinating to see how uh, see how that happens. And it's also an incredible challenge for the players and in particular for the coaches to find a way to put those all those different players together in the quickest amount of time to the best possible uh, a possible effect. Uh, we don't see it a whole uh, a whole lot when it comes to those types of things. As a national team, I remember years ago we played Bayern Munich. Uh, at a certain point, I think we played Parma, if I'm not mistaken. So there have been different times as the U.S. national team that we have played against club teams. And once again, you're going up against um, just an intrinsic type of understanding and knowledge that exists within the team that just come that you can't get if you don't have day in and out day out kind of uh, training anything to add there mossy no that's it all right uh as we mentioned uh the uh hotline number for ask alexi is and continues to be 657-549-2297 that's 657-549-2297 do as your friends peter and tim did and uh leave us a message and you can always uh hit us up on uh, twitter and instagram and facebook and all the different places out there and use that hashtag ask Alexi. thank you so much for uh participating in that we're going to take another quick break and when we come back it's the end of our show and at the end of each show as you know it's my one for the road don't go away All right, we are back, and it's the end of the State of the Union pod. At the end of each and every State of the Union pod, I give you my one for the road. And um, I mentioned before about our uh, State of the Union podcast hotline number, which, again, 657-549-2297. We've been getting a lot of different calls. And you, you, can, you can have a question. You can have a concern. You can just make a statement. You can yell at us. You can tell us how much you, uh, you love us. And by the way, the folks love you out there, Mossy. Um, and if they only knew the real person that you are. But uh, you, whatever you've done, it is, uh, it is resonating out there. Everywhere I go, people tell me how, how great you are and uh, that we should see and hear much more of you. So I try to let you talk as much as I possibly uh, can. And you can certainly, if you're watching, check out this Adonis that I have across from me. It's not easy sitting across from this uh, on a weekly basis. But uh, Bill sent us uh, on the hotline much more of a, uh, of a thank you. Uh, first off, you know, he said how much he loves you. And um, we're not going to uh, play his call. I'm just going to paraphrase it here. But um, he was calling to thank us and certainly thank me for 
my wings take last week. Um, for those that maybe didn't uh, hear or don't know, uh, I expounded upon a Twitter take that I had when it comes to chicken wings in that I find them ridiculous. They are but a, you know, a vessel or a conduit for the sauces. Um, they are incredibly frustrating. And uh, as I said before, the return on investment is ridiculous, as I said. Um, I have enlightened Bill, evidently. He had never actually thought about that. And the more he thought about it, the more it made sense. Now, I don't think necessarily that he or anybody that heard my take on wings stopped liking wings. As a matter of fact, in Bill's case, he took it so to heart that he just started taking the sauces uh, and the uh, spices that are used on his wings and just kind of transferring them to, uh, to other things. But he got my point about the sauces. I'll be honest with you. The sauces are only part of the problem that I have when it comes to wing. Even if you had chicken wings that were completely bare, I guess, of sauce, I would still feel the same in that they are a ridiculous, uh, ridiculous food. So maybe that's a, a, another added hot take to this. But I do appreciate uh, that people are taking this to heart, that are listening and are at least open to my uh, take when it comes to wing. Now, there's a lot of people that automatically turn off and don't believe in, uh, that this is a, any type of valid um, assessment of the wing type of situation. And as I mentioned, there are there is a huge faction of wing lovers out there that were, I think, personally offended by my take. It hit them from a personal perspective, and I think it hit them emotionally that anybody could possibly see wings in this in this light and you know we probably have lost them we've probably lost them here on the state of the union state of the union but you know you you live and die by the takes that uh, that, that you have so i want to thank bill first off for uh, for calling in i hope he is enjoying either his his wings with a newfound understanding and respect for what they are and in as i said what they aren't and if he has moved uh, the sauce to other things and now is enjoying other things with the sauce maybe i have inadvertently you know, positioned him uh, to enjoy something that he didn't even know that he would enjoy. So I will take credit uh, for that. But thank you, Bill, for for calling in when it comes uh, to the uh, wings. You got something to if say, Mossy? I can see you. Wings Place wanted to sponsor this podcast, mm -hmm. but only on the condition that you would have to come on and say you were wrong and that you've actually changed your mind about wings. How would you approach that? Well, Mossy, I think at, at the very beginning of the show, we established how much of a mouthpiece and uh, shill um, uh, that I am for things. And so if a, if a wing, there are wing places out there. Okay. I mean, if, if there was a wing <laughs> business company out there, factory who wanted to be part of the State of the Union, I would certainly um, adjust my, uh, my thinking when it came to something like that. Look, and I, I understand that there are people out there that love it. There is, as I said, millions and millions of people out there that love wings. I'm not sure they love wings. They love the experience of eating wings, maybe much more so than the actual wings. But if somebody were to come on the show and want to be part of this, I, I would give it a chance. It'd have to be good wings. I would have to at least have a respect and an understanding and an acceptance that it was an enjoyable experience eating those wings. Because not it's it, it hasn't been for me. I'm worried about running this bit into the ground. But if I were to bring some wings next week, uh, would you have one on the air? While Do you have like a go-to one? I mean, I don't want any crap 
prep wings. It's kind of redundant, but I don't, I don't want any here. I want, if I'm going to have wings, I want kind of like the best in Los Angeles. I'll, I'll, I'll find a good place. Okay. You find something that you feel are good wings. Okay. And bring them in. And I'm, look, I have an open palate. I have an open mind when it comes to something like that. I'm just telling you that in my 51 years, this has been my experience with wings. And I know a lot of wings lovers out there said, well, you haven't had really good wings. All right. Well, maybe I'm going to have good wings uh, next week when you bring this in. And I will, as I said, I will try it and I will see how the experience is. All right. Anyway, uh, thank you so much. You got anything uh, before we go, Mossy? That's it. All right. Thank you for writing and uh, reviewing and sending uh, your questions, your Ask Alexi questions. Thank you for uh, participating on the hotline. Once again, 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. Thank you for rating and reviewing and uh, downloading and doing all the things that you do on all the different platforms out there. We really appreciate it. We have so much fun. Uh, but uh, the fun comes from the fact that uh, there are people out there listening. And we thank you for all of you, whether you're listening uh, or watching. We will talk to you again, same time, same place next week. And until then, and as always, size the day. Size the day.